Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans, and we have a extra special interview with you today. Virginia Allen sat down with pediatrician, Dr. Marion Mass. She's co-founder of the Practicing Physicians of America and a leading voice and expert in the field of healthcare. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment, but please don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with your friends. It really does make a difference. Here's the interview. It is my pleasure today to welcome to the show Dr. Mary Mass. She's a pediatrician in Pennsylvania. She is also the co-founder of Practicing Physicians of American and really a leading voice and expert in the field of healthcare. So, Dr. Mass, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh my goodness, it's a pleasure to be here. And please call me Marion. Let's Aww. have this be a discussion absolutely. between two great women. <laughs> if I can say that about myself. Oh no, you absolutely can say that about yourself. Well, I'd love to begin by hearing a little bit of your own story, how you got into the field of medicine and got such a passion for medicine. Sure. Um, So uh, I grew up in a small town in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm the only girl, four brothers, and uh, I, I I always had a proclivity for science. I thought I was going to be a research scientist, so I did a lot of research during my years at Penn State University as an undergrad, and then um, I um, I actually worked for Merck for some summers as an intern and did research there and published. So when I went to Duke Medical School, I had a full ride from the NIH uh, mm-hmm. as a, a um, MSTP fellow, medical science training program. Wow! And I got to my first clinical year, which was my second year. And I fell in love with clinical medicine. Hmm. I mean, I, research was something that I could work at and I, you know, did well at it. But medicine, clinical medicine felt like it was where I belonged. And so I gave up my fellowship, but uh, most of the tuition was already paid for by that point. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I feel really bad for young doctors nowadays. I was actually only paying 14000 a year and I only had my last year to pay. Oh, wow. So it's part That's of – incredible. I know. I know. I feel really bad. I mean the tuition there for undergrad is like 77000 now. It's like Jeez. what happened? It's another whole topic. But um, so I, uh, I am unencumbered with loans and so uh, I finished my training in Chicago. So I trained at Robert Lurie Children's Hospital. It was a great clinical training program. Met some wonderful friends, got some great clinical training. And then my husband, he's a surgeon. He and I returned to Bucks County. We started having our children then. And I made the conscious decision that I was going to moonlight nights as a mom, as as a hospitalist, and I would be home with my children. Um, I was a permanently exhausted pigeon (laughs) because we had three children in four years. And I would be like reading books to them at four o'clock after a shift and I would fall asleep and they would like come and they would like – they would lift my eyelids. Oh, <laughs> like, so no. sad. <laughs> so yeah, the wow. young, youngest is 18 now. Okay. But um, we got through those years and then I did some outpatient pediatrics and I'm actually back practicing part-time pediatrics and urgent care. But uh, I do a lot of advocacy. Yeah, so, and yeah. it's been an interesting row to that advocacy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I want to get into talking about that advocacy and some of the problems that we have in the medical system mm-hmm. in a minute. Um, but share just a little bit more for you of what that was like as a mom. You know, you're deciding, okay, I'm going to take a little bit almost of a step back from my career, but I'm, you know, I'm still going to be kind of juggling career and family. And what was going through your head in uh, that season? Well, 
All right. So I'm sure all of my listeners must be familiar with imposter syndrome, oh, yes. right? <laughs> I know I am. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard the word imposter syndrome. So it was the, the five of us that were the MD-PhD candidates met with our advisor who was like this guy with a 50-page resume, like really like incredibly bright. And like the one guy that was, uh, you know, with our group, he said something like, wow, there's a lot of smart people here at Duke. Sometimes I feel like, like, like – and then the advisor is like, like, you don't belong? That's imposter syndrome. We all have it. I have it. Everyone here has it. Right up to the president. Just get over it. Wow. And, you know, like, Even and, a Duke. Yes. Yeah. Well, don't, I mean, whatever. Don't be impressed. There's great people. Like, you know, Penn State prepared me well. Yeah. You know, my, my public school from Penn Ridge High School in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, prepared me well. Hmm. You know, so it's, it, it's, it is what you make of it. Yeah. But I will say that when I hit that point where I was staying home – Mostly changing diapers, chasing children. I that's when I felt imposter syndrome really hit. Like what? What am I doing? What am I doing? Like I I I used to be a contender, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and then I'm doing this, and I remember I went to our 10 year Duke medical reunion, and I'm like, oh boy, I have to have all these people, and they had these big careers and all this other stuff, and and what am I going to tell them that I'm doing? And my best friend from medical school. Um, and we're still in touch today. We text at least weekly. I'm so grateful for these words. She said, you know, Marion, you've always given 110 percent in everything. Why would you want to do less for this portion of your life? Wow. And it really like hit me. And I I didn't deviate. I, I will say it's not the path for everyone, yeah. right? I know some moms that are better moms because they're working full time mm-hmm. and they're still great moms. I know single moms that are incredible moms. God bless them because mm-hmm. – I have a prince of a partner in life. Yeah. I mean, without him, I'll get like, you know, Aww. 27 years married and what he's <laughs> let me do in advocacy. <laughs> um, very grateful. Yeah. Um, but I think like that path, it was very humbling. Nothing humbles you like a child. Yeah. You know, I, you know, you're, when your children like, you know, tell you that the dinner sucks, it smells awful, they don't want to eat it. Or like, I'm trying on a new pair of jeans that I just got at the local thrift store. One of the things to know about me is I shop exclusively at thrift stores. This dress, it's it's an Ivanka. I paid $9. That's Isn't impressive. it great? That's fantastic. Yes, right? Wow. But anyway, so there I am trying on something to my daughter in fourth grade. I'm like, does this make my butt look big? And she's like, don't worry, mom. Plenty of women have big butts. <laughs> Instant, right? So, you know, oh, uproariously hilarious. funny. I don't mind sharing the funny stories, but, you know, they, they humble you. And, yeah. like, you, wanted, you want to be a good model for your children no matter what you're doing. So um, I feel like all those years, you know, that I was doing that and then getting involved in volunteer in my community, like I helped on my um, school district, Central Bucks. It's the third biggest district in Pennsylvania. I served yeah. on the wellness committee. Um, I helped put the gardens in schools. My children ran a garden project out of our yard. I, you know, I've been the homeroom mom. I coordinated the Egyptian feast. You know, I was like, you know, lecturing in schools about, you know, food allergies and wellness and eating right and you know, all kinds of things. Yeah. So all of those things, I feel like they just sort of led to maybe me being more productive in another arena when it came time to start talking about 
like hmm. real medical care reform hmm. and health care reform. They're two separate things, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Wow. Well, so thank you so much for sharing some of your personal background because I think <laughs> it really is inspiring and encouraging, I think, to hear just different women's stories because everybody does it a little bit differently. Yep. And as women, I think we just need to know that there's permission for that, that there's mm-hmm. permission to have the season where, you know, you're the stay-at-home mom or there's permission to to do both, to have the career and the kid. Like, it's okay. What, what you know, what you feel like is where you're being led is okay. So thank you for sharing some of your story. <laughs> no worries. We all have to lift each other. <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, but share share a little bit about your passion for medical advocacy. What, what exactly does that mean and how are you involved in being really this powerful voice yeah. in the medical community that's advocating for, for transparency, for good policy, and advocating for patients? You know what I feel like? Um, so yesterday I got to sit on a healthcare roundtable with um, a lot of like heavy hitters. And I said to a friend of mine, I feel like I've reached the American dream hmm. in grassroots advocacy, my version of the American dream, I guess, maybe. But um, I woke up when the youngest got out of diapers. <laughs> it wasn't that the path, right? <laughs> um, stubborn child, that one, but he's, he's turned out great. They all have. I, I love my kids. But I, I, I woke up when my third was out of diapers, and I was like, what the heck happened to medicine? I felt like when um, I was training at Duke Medical School, we as physicians were the voice of the hospital. We were the voice for our patients, and we have not been that for a long time. Wow. And I remember like – going to health staff meetings and, you know, they were showing us, oh, here's the new EHR. Here's the computer order entry that we have to do. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is a cumbersome mess. Why are we doing this? And people are like, this is just the way forward. This is, you know, the administrators are telling us what to do. And I'd be like, what's wrong with you people? Yeah. You know, I just couldn't get over how as a profession, many of us rolled over. And I suppose for different reasons, you know, we just sort of let things happen to us. We became very passive. So I was already starting to look at, like, how can I get involved? And I got involved a little bit about the state level um, with Pennsylvania Medical Society at that time. And then I, I like, I found people that were in grassroots groups, um, the Benjamin Rush Institute, uh, doc, Docs for Patient Care, some other really great groups. And I kind of watched and followed and listened to them. And then I decided um, – no one was really putting together something at the national level. Mm. And I was thinking about it because I wanted something that was nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, unfortunately, we divide ourselves and we become political about medicine. Yeah. And we have what I call a healthcare food fight, right? Yeah. Like, repeal Obamacare and Medicare for all. Frankly, I think neither of those things are going to or should happen. They mm. just start a healthcare food fight and that it divert us from getting to some real, succinct, specific reforms that will take power away from the profiteering, monopolized corporatizations that are not really – we don't have free market health care at all. Everything is controlled. Really? So we want a free market. We have cronyism. Mm -hmm. We have frank cronyism that is like – nearly monopolized. So anyway, um, so I was like unwinding all this and it's very confusing. And my own mother, you know, I mentioned that I'm like one of five and I'm the only girl. And um, uh, my mother had Alzheimer's and you can read the story in Kevin MD. But the bottom line is in an accoladed hospital with good Medicare Advantage insurance, whatever that means nowadays, (laughs) um, with an advocate like me, 
you know, three weeks after my father passed, my mother was pretty much medically humiliated and re- received no care, did not receive the most basic care, and the hospital didn't even notice. Wow. It's an outrageous story. Kevin M.D., Marion Masters, you'll, you'll find the story. But that really lit me on fire. Mm-hmm. And so then I really started to get involved. In 2017, um, Dr. Westby Fisher of Chicago, he's a cardiologist. We founded Practicing Physicians of America. We're taking on some pretty big people in doing that. The rest of our board is um, – we're a diverse group. We have a child psychiatrist from uh, Texas, uh, Brian Jamal Dixon, a pediatrician from Washington State, uh, Naran Al-Ajba, um, an osteopathic uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor from New York and Pennsylvania, uh, Roy Stoller, and a, a breast surgeon from Texas, Judith oh, wow. Thompson. So we're, we're a diverse board. We're a small board. We don't take any money for our advocacy and then um, in 2019, I wrote a position paper with David Balot, um, and he's the executive director of uh, the Free to Care organization. It's okay. a coalition, 34 member groups, 8 million citizens, 70,000 of us are physicians, and we just agree with the ideas in, in the paper. We, we essentially came along and said, OK, Medicare for all, you know, uh, repeal Obamacare, non-starters. Let's talk about what we can agree on. Okay. So uh, things on drug pricing, um, the drug shortages and the shortages we're seeing in a lot of medical supplies. We were writing about that in 2018 and 2019. Mm-hmm. You know, the need for transparency, um, the need for innovative models of charity care, the need for innovative models of health care, medical care delivery and health care financing. Mm-hmm. And how, how do we ameliorate the physician shortage? We're mm-hmm. staring down the barrel of a physician shortage. Yeah. And you cannot – have medical care without physicians. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot said in the United States about well, we can have health care delivered by other you know providers. That's fine, but medical care is defined by our training in allopathic and osteopathic medical schools, MDs and DOs, and you can't have medical care without physicians, and you're not going to have good quality health care without those physicians. Yeah. So, so how how did in in your opinion, I mean, you've been in the field of healthcare now for what about thirty years, almost thirty years, and so you've seen a lot of changes. You've seen shifts. How did we get to a point where it does feel like you know these big pharmaceutical companies are running things? Healthcare is a billion dollar industry, mm-hmm. and it's really not personal anymore. I mean, in my family, we recently had someone in the hospital, and like you know, it feels like you're just sort of fighting almost against doctors and nurses to get proper information. And it's really overwhelming as someone that doesn't have any sort of medical background to then be kind of like trying to be an advocate and you don't really understand the systems and you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, healthcare things and you're dealing with health insurance. And how did we get to this point where it's so, so not personal and such a sort of like out of control um, Beast. Beast, yeah. Beast. It's a beast. <laughs> Making no mistake. It's a gargantuan job of the hut like oh. throw money in my mouth and feed me. Beast. Wow. Oh, terrible. I think we got there slowly at first and then all at once. Okay. You know, so I feel as though – and I'm very upfront about this. I mean I, I actually know very good people in the AMA. Um, but I think overall the organization has not served to advocate for the profession of medicine mm-hmm. nor for the patients of America. They've become part of the corporatized care. Look, they get like more than half of their funds don't come from membership. They come from selling the CPT codes. You know, all those – the codes that we need to to get paid by insurance companies, 
the AMA owns those codes and they're monetized for them. I mean, the World Health Organization owns the ICD-10 codes, but they don't get money for it. I don't understand why they get paid for making these codes. And uh, and so I think over time, physicians became demoralized and discouraged because they didn't feel like they had a voice. And it's not just me telling them. It's, you know, pretty much uh, more than 85 percent of U.S. physicians because in the 1960s, 85 percent of physicians were members of the AMA, Right. Now it's below 12%. Mm. Did you know that? I did not. Did know everyone that. hear that? Less than 12% of US practicing physicians are members of the AMA. And I know great members of the AMA, and they have some good positions on things. But there's some of us that kind of look at it like they have a big conflict of interest. Mm. They also sell our data. You know, when we graduate from um, uh, either medical school or residency, I forget which, we get a medical education number. And the AMA has a master file on that and they can track our prescribing information and like, you know, what we do with devices and stuff like that. And then they take that data and they they sell it and, mm-hmm. and then they sell it to entities that slice it, dice it, chop it up, sell it to the pharmaceutical companies. And that's how you have these like pharma reps showing up at your door saying, hey, want some lunch? Wow. wow. <laughs> so I know. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I wrote an article on that in the PPA blog. It's okay. called – starving a dragon of the healthcare swamp and it details the you know the AMA's like selling of the data it's really important yeah because like we as physicians it's really our data just like you as a patient your healthcare data really is your data mm-hmm. but you know everyone's selling it right i didn't i didn't know everyone was selling yeah. it <laughs> everyone's <laughs> a little discouraging <laughs> yes it is very discouraging you should be selling your data not wow. everyone else yeah. but the big corporations are so how did we get here you asked well like look I mean, I think most people in America, the listening um, people, mostly women, I suppose. I'm not sure. But I mean, uh, they all take a look and they think like, okay, why is medicine so expensive? I mean, because it is. It's bloated costs. We all know it, right? It's really more than 20 percent of the GDP because if you take what you pay in co-pays and taxes and everything else, it's probably like 50 percent of the money in America is flowing into healthcare. Gross. So – People blame big insurance and they're right and they blame big pharma and they're right and they blame big physician and they're right. But there's also other entities that are there pulling the strings. And and I don't I'm not gonna um I'm not going to whitewash my own profession. Sure. I mean, look, I've written an article, um, medicine sellout, scrubs gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what it's like to do that? But there are people that sell out, right? Yeah. Um so I, I will call my own profession out. And I think we have to be part of the solution moving forward. I'm a positive person. But, you know, we didn't push back against the insurance industry. We didn't push back against the hospital industry. And, you know, that's actually difficult for me. I I work for a hospital. Mm -hmm. I don't speak for that hospital. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they may be even listening today. And if I hope they are, I think there's – I've had wonderful administrators at my own hospital. And I honestly don't see them as quite as – Egregious as other nonprofit hospitals that are have CEOs that are profiting madly, mm-hmm. but um, the hospital industry, the middlemen for the hospital industry, the middlemen for the pharmaceutical industry, the health IT industry, all of these people are like their own individual job of the huts, like sucking money in, wow. <laughs> pulling it out of your pockets, and then they're imposing control on not just physicians but on nurses, on PTs, on OTs. 
um, on respiratory therapists, on all the people that you see working in the hospital. So you went to the hospital and you felt like you were a number, it sounds like. Pretty right? much. Yeah, I think my whole family yes, did. Yes, <laughs> and it wasn't personal. No, but like, not at all. Most of the people that are the, the boots on the ground putting their hands on you, taking care of you, we don't want it that way. And by the way, if you look at the pie chart of, of um, health care, you know, the $4.2 trillion job of the hut system, beast, mm-hmm. uh, the people that touch you are making – 27 percent of the 20 of the healthcare dollar 27 cents on the healthcare dollars made by us physicians it's 7.4 cents on the healthcare dollar nurses I think it's 6.2 or around there okay. and then like everyone else you know the PTs the OTs you know all those others are you know they're little pieces but then there's a great big I call it the red pac-man because when we <laughs> when my friend uh, Brennan Hodge made the chart he made it red the other 75 percent and you can't see a lot of that money yeah you can't see where it's going and I, I it feels to me as though it's really easy to keep on well let's just keep on blaming physician and pharma yeah and yeah both of those entities have some blame I don't whitewash pharma either and I don't take any money from pharma did everyone hear that I don't <laughs> Marion mass does not have money coming record. into her pocket <laughs> from the pharmaceutical industry um, I, I do have some compassion for them mm-hmm. because I see them as a little bit of kin to us you have the paper pushers and the bean counters and the administrators and the people who write contracts and then you have the people who are actually touching the patient the ones that you met in the hospital mm-hmm. and you have the people who are doing research like I used to do and then you have those people who are manufacturing and at least they're giving us a product that is sometimes needed. Mm-hmm. Millions uh, – well, billions now probably of Americans took the COVID vaccination, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they felt like it was a good thing and probably many that were at risk feel more protected because they took that. You know, I'm certainly happy that we had the measles vaccination for children mm-hmm. over decades because measles, that's a bad player in children. COVID, not so much, but measles, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I have some kinship, but yeah, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't always do everything right, you know, I, and they should be called on that. And, you know, the same for physicians, as yeah. I said. Yeah. But I, it, if you look at everyone, Congress, HHS, CMS, who have they taken the biggest bite out of? Physicians. Hmm. You know, I, I can give you, for example, um, I think people used to get paid something like Two or three thousand dollars for a tonsillectomy back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. I believe we get less than eight hundred dollars now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that's for everything. That's for the pre-visit, the post-op visit. If there's any complications, the OR fee, you know, all the rest of that. And so when you go in for that tonsillectomy, I bet your bill comes out to be like <laughs> what what your insurance company agrees to pay or whatever. Yeah. What's on the EOB? It's probably like twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars, and it shouldn't be. Yeah. So like, if the surgeon's getting eight hundred dollars, probably the anesthesiologist is getting less than that. Where's all that money going? Show me the money, baby. (laughs) Where's it going? So, of course, uh, you know, these things are complicated. There's no silver bullet. But, you know, what what needs to happen in order to to get kind of health care and big pharma and all these things back to a place where it's not this crazy monster and medicine can maybe become a little bit more personable again? A hundred percent. So what do we need to do? Like in the quippy little phrase world, um, Cut the glut, open the books, and make everybody play by the same rules. Yeah. Okay? So going through each of those things. Glut. You know, uh, what I call glut is all of the crappity crap that we have to do as physicians, as nurses, as PTs, as OTs. I'm not against documentation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, overdoing it is crazy. 
prior authorization is a big issue. There's a bill on the Hill on the House side and the Senate side. The House side, it was introduced by uh, Representative Del Benny, a Democrat. On the House side, uh, my good friend, Senator Roger Marshall, who is an MD. Uh, so fix prior off. Hashtag fix prior off. Go look that one up. <laughs> but, you know, physicians spend uh, an average of 16 hours per week on prior off. What prior off is, it's like a mother may I for us. Like the insurance company decides, nope, your patient can't have that. And, but what do you mean? Yeah. We're the ones that say the patient needs it. It's We're red sorry. tape in other Yes, words. it's red tape. Okay. And so then we have to go through this series of steps of playing mother may I. And the insurance company doesn't have any culpability for that. So, you know, I remember patients that turned out to have, uh, you know, when I was in outpatient primary care, we had to go through a prior auth process for a family. Um, the one child turned out to have a brain malformation, needed the MRI, and it took forever to get the first MRI. And then the second child had the same malformation, more red tape. And it's like, but, 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 and you have to do all these phone calls. And guess what? That's taking time away from your patients. Yeah. There's probably 25 things I could tell you that take time away from our patients that we have to do that we don't want to have to do. Yeah. And so cut the glut. Open the books. Remember that big red Pac-Man? Sure. Where's the money Where's the going? Money? <laughs> yes. And like, you know, it's, it's getting sucked away. In, and sometimes, you know, one of my big targets has been um, pharmacy benefit managers. These are the, the people that um, uh, manage your prescription you know, drugs. Mm -hmm. um, so it, just as example, insulin, 80% of the cost of insulin is going to the PBMs. Let me repeat that. 80% of the cost of insulin is going to the PBMs. And that's sort of like this third party middleman. Yes, yes. And now they're owned by the insurance companies. Okay. So there's all kinds of like, you know, integration going on. And then like, you know, <laughs> and who let that integration happen anyway? It's a giant conflict of interest. And by the way, in some cases, they're also owning the pharmacy itself. So look at like CVS, which mm -hmm. is sort of like, I'm just going to say it. It's like the evil empire. You know, they own the pharmacy. They own the PBM. They own Aetna. They bought Aetna. They had $62 billion sitting around. And why did they get the $62 billion? Because like 60% of the revenue was coming from their PBM. And everyone blames the insurance company. But these PBMs are the cash cows for the insurance companies. So now everyone's like talking on the Hill, reconciliation packages, uh, the package, drug pricing. What they're putting out from the Senate and the reconciliation package, if they're talking about drug pricing and they're not including PBM reform, hmm. then they're not fighting for the American people. They're not getting Check to the heart that. of the issue. If you are doing anything with drug pricing that does not include PBM reform, you're not a real fighter. You're a faux fighter. Hmm. I'm going to call you on it. Hear that? You're a faux fighter. Hmm. Get yeah. it? Get it? Like yeah, yeah. fighters? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I think, I mean, it, it's a wonky subject, but when you actually start to get into it and realize, wow, okay, there's all of these players who are benefiting and and, and it's mm -hmm. a it's a large, really monster to kind of unpack and sure. begin to, yeah. to bring it down and make it simpler and get yeah. medicine back to a place where... Where know, it's personal, be because if you cut our glut... And you open the books, then you'd figure out who's making the money, mm -hmm. and then we'd cut more glut because <laughs> those people are tying us up. Yeah. And, and then, like, if you made everyone play by the same rules, I mean, those PBMs that I just talked about, they are legally allowed to receive kickbacks. Check that. Right. In 2003, hey, we'll let this industry that's now controlling the pharmaceutical industry, we'll let them collect kickbacks. But wow. no one else except the hospital supply people because they can do it too. But And if you actually take a look at the richest healthcare companies by revenue in America, 
out of the top 11, 10 of them are legally allowed to receive kickbacks. Do you think that has anything to do with how they got so rich? Yeah. Duh. <laughs> Can I say duh? Sure, lie. sure. So so for anyone listening who's thinking, you know, they maybe have a passion for medicine, they want to go into medicine, maybe they're already in the medical field, but they're kind of hearing like, oh, goodness, you know, it is this beast. What is your advice to them? What is yeah. your encouragement? So I would say if you have a passion for medicine, go for it because we need bright, young, committed, passionate doctors, physicians. And I feel even though it's a long road to hoe, we're always going to need quality medical care. And remember, you can only get medical care from an MD or a DO because we're defined by our training. It's a long row. You know, it's the four years of college, making sure you're good enough to get into the four years of medical school, Mm -hmm. followed by anywhere between three and 11 years of residency, which, you know, those years, they really kind of stink. That's when you really need some help being held up. But um, it, you know what, it's also a really joyful place to be. Mm. Um, What an honor, you know, to, to be with people, to hold their hands in their times of need, you know, when I did hospital work and especially when I did my training, you'd, you'd meet really sick patients, you know, and, and they were just so vulnerable and scared and they need our trust. Mm-hmm. You know, they need to be able to trust us as a profession and all of this stuff that's come up around us, the big red Pac-Man, the job of the hut beast, it's causing people not to trust the healthcare arena, right? I have patients now that tell me there's a lot of doctors I don't trust. I have Patients tell me, I don't trust the hospital. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really sad. People don't trust pharma. I mean, look at this whole COVID fiasco. Mm-hmm. And it was a fiasco. Yeah. You know, I, we really, we raised the radar for the American public to realize how broken the landscape is, which is good. And I do think we can bring this back and polish off, you know, a, a beautiful profession. But you're not going to do it unless physicians lead. Good physicians, yeah. ethical physicians you know, and, and we're not going to do it without calling out people that maybe they haven't, you know, they've been running around in Washington, D.C. spouting what I call convenient untruths yeah. because that's how this place works, right? Hey, listen, Congressman and Senator, let me tell you why my big, large, gigantic, you know, job of the hut corporation is just doing wonderful things, yeah. but really not so much for the patient, of course. But, you know, then it, it sounds really good, right? Mm-hmm. And then those of us schmucks who are too busy, you know, running practices or, you know, we don't have enough time to get down here. Yeah. And then you come down here and you discover, you know, I was down here with my sister-in-law. Uh, so Tina and, and my brother, my brother Martin is a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. He actually got the PhD. So, <laughs> so <laughs> right. I'm a slacker. So. <laughs> but, I don't think so. <laughs> so we came down here Not and quite. she was like talking to someone in the cafeteria and like she came up to me and she's like, that person I was talking to? They work for a PBM and they told me there's two or 300 lobbyists down here on the hill today lobbying for PBMs. I'm like, you know, it's just exhausting. Like, yes, it's a it is a swamp. It is. Yeah. 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 Well, before we let you go, I have to ask you a question that we love to ask all of our guests on this show. um, And that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? No right or wrong answer here. <laughs> Naturally, I'm not going to have a one-word answer here. <laughs> of course not. No, I don't, no one does. <laughs> so anyone who asks me to talk better be prepared, right? <laughs> so um, I love being a woman. Mm. Uh, I am a feminine person. I do believe that we should be empowering women to be strong and noble and full of grace. Um, 
you know, that, that comes from my Catholic background. But you, you know, I, I do believe there's many paths to salvation. Um, I, I do believe women can achieve anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I feel like in, in America we've become sometimes lumpers and sometimes splitters. And those are both – those words just even sound so negative. Like yeah. who wants to be a lump? Who wants to be split, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, I think we should be like unifiers. So what I'd rather do is sit down and talk to people who are feminists and like, well, what, why do you consider yourself a feminist if you do? You know, like, like what, what, what do we agree with? What can we agree upon, you know, as, as women together? You know, I mean clearly, you know, I grew up in a household that most would consider very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what I have to say? Uh, and both my parents are gone now. Both my mom and dad had their own unique way of lifting me up, recognizing that I was um, bossy and bright. <laughs> I shouldn't use the word bossy. I should say assertive, right? So I was assertive and I was bright and I was heck bent on getting somewhere. And, um, you know, my father, he he always, like, encouraged my education. But he was also careful. He tempered it. I remember when I was 18 – he said to me, he's like, oh, OK, so you're going to leave and you want to go to college and then medical school. And he's like, but I'm going to tell you something I know you don't want to hear. You can't do it all and do it all really well all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And boy, was I mad, right? Yeah. You know, because like I can do everything, you know, yeah. but he was right. And I came to see it over time. And finding our balance, I think, is really important. Yeah. 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 So like now I come down to Washington, D.C. and you know, I've had times where I'm like, like I'm sitting at some important meeting and the phone is going off and there's like, where's the meatballs in the freezer? Or like, when is so-and-so supposed to be at, you know, confirmation practice or whatever? I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I still have to handle some of the details. But like we're, we're all making it work. It's a different season than it was when I was home always diligently making the meatballs. But we're, we're making it work. Marion, thank you so much for joining. It's just been a pleasure to have you and hear some of your story and also break down a little bit of a, of a wonky subject, but one that affects all of us. So thanks for your time. Oh, my gosh. It was my great pleasure. People can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. They can find Practicing Physicians of America. They can find Free to Care. Uh, and uh, I really appreciated spending this part of my day with you. And I will go back out into Washington, D.C. and continue to be a problematic woman. Please do. <laughs> Isn't Dr. Mass just so inspiring? Thank you, Virginia, for that interview. And with that, that's going to be it for this edition of Problematic Women. Please subscribe and share on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Please leave us a review. I read all of them. I can't wait to see what you'd say. And most importantly, have a great week, and we'll be back on Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.